Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Welcome back to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and today my guest is Warren Odes. Warren Odes is a Broadway veteran. He's been performing since the 60s and 70s, and his music career has been in full swing for well over 50 years. Warren has performed in shows such as The Life, Civil War, Cat and the Kings, Susical, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Lennon, Come Fly Away, The Wedding Singer, Priscilla, Rocky, An American in Paris, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and recently, King Kong. Warren has played with so many different artists in so many different locations over so many years, they are too numerous to mention. But without further ado, I bring you Warren Odes. All right, welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Warren Odes. He is a Broadway legend. He's a studio legend and New York City all-around legend. And <laughs> glad to have him on my podcast. Thank you for being here. I have a bunch of questions, like I always say at the very beginning of my podcast, and usually, usually the first one is, where are you from? I was born in Brooklyn, but then we moved to Massapequa, Long Island when I was three. I lived there until I was 10. Then I moved to New Jersey for a year and then back to Long Island to Seaford until I was 18. And then I went to college and moved into the city the next year. What's your first musical memory? My parents played a lot of records, but the guy across the street had a snare drum. And he used to bring the snare drum over and I was like totally enamored with it. But my parents played a lot of, you know, Count Basie and Sarah Vaughan and Frank Sinatra. And, and my sister was five years older. So then I got the Johnny Mathis, Little Anthony and the Imperials, you know, that, that generation. Did you, do you remember the first record that you either begged your parents to get or brought on your own? I kind of remember, I don't know who bought it, maybe my sister or me, Meet the Beatles. Really? I was 10 when the Beatles, that night, that famous night on Ed Sullivan. Did you watch it? I sure did. And (laughs) um, it blew my mind, like most people my generation. Okay, what was uh, it about that that performance that blew your mind? Everybody, a lot of people say the same thing. What was it about that particular performance? You just never seen anything like it? Yeah, it was like they came on a shuttle from Mars. It It was so different than anything anyone had ever seen. The sound of it, the way they looked. Plus, you know, you can never write this off when you talk about famous people of that level. Just a mad amount of charisma. I think, you know, even George Martin went on to produce them. At first, he musically, he was like, I don't get it with these guys, but uh, whatever. He knew that they had some kind of charisma, some magic, you know. And um, some people just have that, man. And they had it in, you put the four of them together... I mean, we're still talking about the Beatles, you know, mm-hmm. just really charismatic kind of people. Were you a big Ringo Starr fan shortly after that? Yes. But uh, not, you know what? Not till I became a teenager. When I was younger, Joe Jones was a family friend. My father was not a musician, but he 
used to go into the city with my mother and he used to go see Joe play at the Embers a lot. Joe used to come out to our house. He was a family friend. And I was, I kind of knew he was really famous. I'm like, kind of like six or seven or eight or something, you know, and like, and I'm listening to those records around the house. His daughter used to come, his daughter, Barbara used to stay with us for two weeks at a time in the summer. I don't think I was, I don't think Ringo's drumming particularly drew my attention. I think the Beatles did. Then when I became a teenager and started playing in bands, then I kind of tapped into like, wow, this is, this is great. But I was more into the, the music of the Beatles than his particular drumming. You said that a neighbor had a snare drum. Did you eventually get that snare drum? Yeah, I didn't get that one, but my parents bought me a uh, toy snare drum, whatever, you know, a little thing on some stands with some sticks. And, you know, I played the snare drum, you know. Then I eventually, you know, like old people, so I'm banging on pots and pans. And then they, they took me for some lessons. Was that in elementary school? I wasn't in any music programs. I was too cool for that, Clayton. <laughs> Only nerds were in. <laughs> if I had to do it again, I'd be in every one of those programs now. But no, I didn't do anything in school like that. I took the private lessons. And, you know, after the Beatles, anyone who had any instrument, you're now forming a band. So if the other guy had anything, you're forming a band. And we used to use, my father had like a Weber, Weber tape recorder and we, use the microphone to sing into, you know, it was real primitive, man. But whatever the other person had, you now have a band, any combination of any things. I didn't know any people with clarinets or any instruments like that. It was all guitars and basses and Hammond organs. Uh, so I took the music lessons. And then in high school, like I said, I was way too cool to be in any band. There's no way I'm going to be in marching band or symphony band or any you know, state, whatever. But I did join um, when I was trying to get into college. So I had to all of a sudden try to play catch up and look like I'm a legitimate musician because I was really just a rock musician. And uh, so I joined the band, I think in 11th or 12th grade. Joined the Huntington Training Orchestra for kids, symphony kind of thing. But I was late to that whole scene. Like I said, man, I... I, I so wish I did all the marching band, rudimental kind of stuff, you know? Well, when you were starting out with the lessons, did you look up to any other drummers other than Ringo? And, and I know you had Joe Jones come around, but were there any other influences in your life that you looked up to as far as drumming? In Teenage Land? Yes. Yeah. Buddy Rich completely blew my mind. We used to go see him play. And... I, I just feel bad. I hate to say for anyone who hasn't been in a room when he was playing. I mean, the records are great, the videos, but it's just a tsunami of joy when this cat played. <laughs> a tsunami of joy. A tsunami of joy. <laughs> That's it's great. just euphoria on, you just can't believe what's happening. You know, the air moving towards you and this maniac is doing this. And it's not just a chops thing. It's just, he was like the, you know, bigger than life kind of guy. He was amazing. Of course, John Bonham. Love John Bonham. Shelly Mann. Did you ever see Led Zeppelin back back then? Uh, unfortunately, I didn't. My friends went and I didn't go. No, mm. I didn't. I go. I'm so sorry I didn't go. Keith Moon? Uh, my only experience with Keith Moon was 
I don't know how this happened. I was in an elevator in New York City, and the Who walked in the elevator. <laughs> and you said, Who? No, I'm going to stop that. I was just, you know, Pete Townsend is, you know, you, you can't miss that guy. He's really recognizable. I was like, they were talking about business. I don't know. I was 14 or 15 or something. Buddy Rich, John Bonham, Shelly Mann. Everybody loved Bobby Columbia in those days. He was amazing. Which group was he in again? Chicago? Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Oh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Bobby Columbia. Ah. Kind of like, he really, it was some sort of innovation, man. I mean, uh, that fluidity that a jazz drummer has with rock rhythms. It's kind of like new on the scene with that stuff. But there was so, I mean, in those days, I mean, one after another, just mind-bending innovation, you know? Do you remember your first band that you played with in uh, high school or junior high? And what, do you remember the name um, of it? We were called the Trampling Hum. <laughs> the Trampling Hum? Hum, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we changed it to Hum, so it, you know, it got better. We played a lot of gigs, man. I mean, you know, look, in those days, live music ruled, you know? I mean, in high school, I was playing six nights a week in lounges. Do you remember what you got paid back then? I've, I've always been curious about that. I don't remember. I do remember being maybe 14, playing at a Halloween party and getting $25. And that was it. I was hooked then, man. What? Play the drums, $25? This is Mm. amazing. I mean, in those days also, I can't leave out Dino Dinelli from the Rascals. People in my neighborhood, we all went nuts for this guy. We all bought those drums, pink champagne Ludwig drums that I still have. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. He's still great, man. I mean, you know, he was a Sonny Payne reinvented as a rock drummer. Just really incredibly exciting guy. And I got to see them a couple of times. You finished high school and you decided to go study music at, in college. I went to Manhattan School of Music. Now, why did you choose there and not? As I often hear people go to Berkeley... Or, uh, or any other, or Juilliard? Um, well, I don't think I could have gotten in Juilliard. I had no, no symphonic background. Somehow in my last two years, like 11th and 12th grade, I got a xylophone. I practiced it to try to get in. I think I killed my grandmother with that thing. Mm. Uh, and then I did this Huntington training orchestra. I really just barely snuck into Manhattan. I got in. I think on a conditional six-month trial basis. Honestly, I think they needed students at the time. You know, they were a business like anyone else. But when I got in, I killed myself to try to, you know, get in the groove. But the whole thing was like being a salmon, man. I was, uh, you know, you're in these, a conservatory with kids who've been going to Juilliard Prep and, you know, all these real classical backgrounds. They knew all the symphonies. I didn't know anything, man. Did you gravitate towards people that listen to a lot of the same music that you listened to growing up, or did you wind up going towards more symphonic players and, you know, learning from them, or was it a combination of all of, all of the above? Yeah, it was a combination of all of the above. I mean, I was at Manhattan during an incredibly great time. Uh, a lot of great classical musicians and a lot of great jazz musicians. Bob Mincer was there, Buddy Williams, Angie Bofield, Mitch Foreman, Kenny Kirkland. That's the way it was in the city in those days, right? Mark Sherman was around the periphery there. 
Joe Pissarro was doing some, like, I think he was doing graduate work. Uh, I used to see Joe up there who's playing all this contemporary classical music. He was amazing. I was in the jazz band in college. You know, and this is the beginning days of that whole college jazz. Manhattan is a classical school. They didn't, they didn't look kindly upon this whole jazz thing. Oh, wow, really? Oh, man, no. I mean, but Rusty Dietrich had helped. He had the band. And we would go to competitions and win because we had, we had like graduate students. We had like John Faddis was in the band for a minute, you know, and then these, like I said, graduate students. So they would play in the band and uh, David Friedman had a little jazz class, but it was really not, it was really frowned upon. It was really classical music, you know. When you were going to Manhattan School of Music back then, Berkeley was a very hot school as well. Now, why didn't you choose Berkeley? Why didn't I choose Berkeley? That's a great question. You know what? I should have gone to Berkeley. Um, well, one reason is if I stayed in Manhattan, I could make a living and I needed money. Were you doing gigs at night? I was gigging. My father died when I was 10. Uh-huh. So, you know, money was it was an issue, right? Yeah, was I gigging? I was totally gigging. I was playing weddings on the weekends. And then because... Uh, I'll say I lead a charmed life. Milt Hinton got me this gig playing with Bernie Layton's quartet at Jimmy Weston's. Bernie Layton, uh, if you look on the internet, is one of the premier studio musicians of the time. He was Hindemith's protege. Just a brilliant guy. Sight read anything. And, and in that band, you know, Milt Hinton, Bernie. And then Bernie would send in subs and they were like Hank Jones, Derek Smith. And then the guitarist, Gene Bernsini, was there. And so I got to meet all these guys and work with them. I worked with Hank Jones. And uh, in my third year of school, I met uh, Wally Harper because I was subbing for my teacher from when I was a kid, Al Pollock, who was a percussionist. And I subbed on the show, Irene. I met Wally Harper, who was Barbara Cook's accompanist. And uh, he invited me to do this her comeback record at Carnegie Hall. So my third year of school, I did this big deal thing on Columbia Records. Uh, Looking back, I can't believe that this guy trusted me with this task. It seems insane to me now. I was like 20 years old. Wow. Wow, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of cuckoo, man. I mean, that's the theme of my story. I think it's anybody's story is... You do something well over here, and someone recommends you over there, you know? You graduated what year? 76. Okay. I usually ask people that were around in the 70s and 80s in New York City, did you prefer the New York City of the mid-70s and 80s as opposed to the New York City of the 2010s when it was... You had Broadway, which is, you know, at the peak of its powers financially. It's safe, and Times Square is nice and Disney-fied. And uh, do you prefer the energy back then? I know there's a, a difference when it comes to the amount of work for musicians. But, you know, did, did you like it safer, or do you like it a little bit more dangerous, or, or yeah. both? Everything's a trade-off, right? Um, I was at a different point in my life then, too. There's no doubt that it was more artist-friendly. There were so many clubs, and, and a lot of us lived in lofts. 
I had a loft on 22nd Street. There was just clubs left and right. I used to, it's just an incredibly great time for artists. And the corporate thing is, it's a drag. I mean, then there were more shops. You know, you'd go on 8th Avenue and the guy on the second floor was the guy who fixed watches, you know. Like Ippolito's little drum store was up there. It was a more uh, folksy, artsy thing. But yeah, the trade-off was safety. I mean, I used to go, I can't believe I did this. Slugs was this was where Lee Morgan got shot. It was a killer jazz club on 10th between B and C. And in those days, man, you know, like Mad Max in the Thunderdome, the car on fire in the middle of the street. <laughs> Damn, was like that? Scary, man. I heard Alphabet City was was not the place you wanted to you be. You cannot, you can't believe it, man. That was the scariest. And I have like, you know, like shoulder length, hippie head hair, dude from Long Island. Even going to the Fillmore then was like, you know, you had to pay attention, man. <laughs> the subways were brutal. Oh. Uh, I mean, but everything's a trade-off, man, because now it's... Try to own a restaurant or a club or rent an apartment, God forbid. Jeez, man. I've always been curious as to how it really was back in the 70s and 80s. Now, when I got here in New York City in 1993, I had a drum set. You know, I had a cart. I had a car, too. So I'd take my car from Jersey City and drive through and pay $4 to get into the uh, through the Holland Tunnel and pay a dollar for gas back then. And then I'd take my drums and then park and then go play a, a gig get paid fifty dollars and go back and it's like yeah i'm 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 I made it <laughs> now did you live in the city and you took the subway you you brought your drums that way over there drums in the clubs you said there were clubs everywhere did people bring their own stuff and you said you played six nights a week in certain places like how did that all work out well the six nights a week was when i lived in long island how did it work out it was uh it was scary i mean it was all scary I did take the subway. I did everything. I did whatever I wanted to do and just did it. So where were your drums? They were in the loft? And well, they just... did, clubs didn't have drums. Oh, wow. Okay. And recording studios didn't have drums. So you took your drums to recording sessions too? I, I worked at, there was a recording studio on Christopher Street, downtown sound maybe. And I had no money. I never had money, really. And, uh, and I didn't have enough money to put it in a cab or something. So I took the drums on the subway. Yeah, it was unbearable. And these were the old days with those hard cases. You know, you couldn't even, like, wrap them around. I I don't know how I did it, man. By the time I got to the gig, I I couldn't even play. I was, like, toasted. (laughs) But uh, in those days, like, yeah, recording studios had – some had drums, but they usually had, like, A&R had a bass drum. And then you brought all your stuff. And they had something like a drum club, and it was, like, these trap cases with a lock on it. I didn't belong to that club. Um, and some of them had like tom-toms, but it wasn't, it wasn't like today where you go in the power station or any of these studios or all these clubs around New York that have drums. I mean, even the bitter end, which was not that long ago, you'd be, you probably did gigs there. It's like 80 bands trying to bring this stuff in and out. And everyone's freaked out that someone's going to steal everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there were no drums anywhere. So but in those days also, man, I feel like father time here, but there were like long runs at clubs. You know, I, I, would, I used to work with Jackie and Roy, the singing duo. We would play at Michael's Pub for maybe a month. 
Or you'd play at Fat Tuesdays for a week or two. You'd leave your stuff there. Obviously. You'd leave your stuff there. I was in the house band of Sweetwaters for a while. Did you ever play there? Yeah, I remember Sweetwaters. <laughs> that was- <laughs> it was just leaving when I first got here. A lot of the clubs that were part of the New York City heyday, like Mikel's and Sweetwaters, and but there's a place on Park Avenue. Oh, Max's Kansas City? Yes, Max's Kansas City. All that yeah. was like about to go out. Luckily, I played yeah. CBGBs and Sweetwater and some of that stuff, but I missed on Mikel's. Maybe I didn't really know I should have gone because I heard so many stories. But anyway, you played Sweet. You were in the house band for Sweetwaters. So in- interesting. I did it for a long time. I uh, on and off, you know, and I was on the road a lot in those days too. So it's give and take. So you do a week in these places. They they'd pay you per night, or they pay you for the week. Well, usually I was working. Well, uh, well, Sweetwaters, I was being paid by the club. I don't remember how they paid us. I guess for the week or something. And then maybe if you had a sub, you paid the sub or something, you know? And uh, whatever artist I was working with, they would pay me. It was different then, man. It was, everything was different. It's always different, right? You started playing around town, doing gigs in certain clubs and doing some touring and did you do a lot of recording sessions uh right out of you know after college and i left school two weeks early my professors let me leave i went on the road with jackie and roy the singing duo and they were jazzy and we went to boston and Toronto. and it was my first real go on the road experience and it was incredible amount of fun and very high level playing and I was in and out of town a lot in those days. I didn't really make it my goal to become a studio guy, whatever that means. Uh, I, I worked with Judy Collins for a long time. We were always on the road. It was a lot of this always on the road, come back, road, back. And I did everything. I played at weddings. Um, there was a lot of studio work then, too. I mean, there was an incredible amount. I mean, I went to, I used to sub for Gary Muir, who had a, quite a career on jingle dates and stuff. And then he said to me, hey, um, I don't want to go away. Do you want to go to Japan with Astro Gilberto? And I said, okay. And I went to Japan with her. And they, these guys were so busy. And they were so afraid of leaving, I guess, this slot, you know. There was a lot of work, man. Even, I mean, you could play, even if not everything else failed, you could play a lot of weddings. I was an, I was an, I would, I, in, in all honesty, I was an adjunct. I mean, I did a lot of recording sessions, but I wasn't, I wasn't Steve Gadd. Let's not kid ourselves. I wasn't a, you know, six day a week, three sessions a day guy, you know, and maybe bad planning on my part. I would start to develop relationships with people, jingle guys and other guys, and they would call me. And then I would, like Gary Chester said, I would go away and be NGing all the time because I was away for a week. And, you know, they call someone else because it's New York City and mm-hmm. there's a couple of talented people here. <laughs> uh, radio registry. And I, I've heard a lot about that. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I don't really understand exactly how it worked. Yeah, that was uh, an answering service. And they kind of knew your schedule. And these studios had a phone like the bat, Batmobile, Batline. And they would find you at uh, whatever studio you were at and say, hey, there's a gig for you uh, at two. Can you do it? Do you want to do it? 
and they would keep your schedule. So a contractor would say, well, get me this guy, this guy, that guy, that girl, whatever. And uh, they would book your sessions. And it was there was a lot of uh, last-minute stuff. Um, it was a fruitful time, man. You got to remember, every piece of music was handmade. Every piece of music was handmade. There was no synthesizers. Every jingle thought demo had to have at least a piano player. You know, I used to work up at Chapel Music. They had a demo studio. It wasn't like today we have logic and you make a demo. How, how are you going to make it? You know, in those days, people didn't have recording studios in the houses. So it was a, there was, and there was a heavy tier system. The A-Cats, the Steve Gadd guys, B, C, D, E, down the line. There were the jingle guys. There were the record guys. There were the Broadway guys. There were the club date guys. It was a cast system. Right? Which brings me to Broadway. I understand back then, since there was so much work, a lot of people didn't really look, look to Broadway as a, a career option because there were so many other things. You had tours, you had TV shows, you had recording sessions, you had jingles. It's like Broadway. And plus the music wasn't as cool as it is now, I suppose. You know, now a lot of things are basically pop, pop uh, shows. So it's more contemporary. What was the thing that got you into, did you get into Broadway in the 70s or was it the 80s? And what got you into it? couple of comments uh, it was hard in those days the union contract wasn't like it is now you couldn't take off you had to like you were at the mercy of the conductor or the contractor people paid their own subs wow. if i subbed to you and your show you would write me a check or hand me some money and you would get all the benefits and there wasn't this 50 percent thing it, you kind of like Taking off was a big deal. It was hard to do. So to get a top-tier kind of person in a Broadway show who's going to be called for record dates all the time, it was hard, man. So how did I get into it? I subbed for my teacher at Irene, the show Irene. The conductor said to me, hey, I got a show. Do you want to do it? I said, no. You know, you're saying, why did you say no? Because I was 2018, 19... I wanted to change the world. I wanted to be the next Tony Williams or whatever, you know, the, the way you think when you're that age, right? And in those days, like the Broadway pits were like these old kind of drunk guys, you know, angry drunk guys. They were kind of scary. Uh, unlike man. today? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, people today are they're really disciplined, man. You know, nah, the work know, is hard and to get and people don't want to blow it, you know. But those days, it was like a lot of people didn't talk to each other and, you know, they it was, it was weird. And I was really young and they were really old. And, you know, I want to do young person things, you know, mm -hmm. but then I always subbed a little bit here and there. And I was one of those people that said, well, how do you get into this scene? Cause by then I really needed to get into that scene. I needed more steady income. I needed health benefits. I had two kids. So, you know, it's so weird, man. I, um, I used to play with this guy, Kirk Nurok, who's a composer and a jazz pianist. And we had a free jazz group. And uh, he was still dabbling in 
commercial music, and he became orchestrator of this show, Three Musketeers. He recommended me. I did the show. Red Press was the contractor. Gordon Harrell was the conductor. Show lasted two weeks. Huge failure. But um, Gordon got to like me and know me, and he called me for some other things. We did this thing, Senator Joe. There was some wacky thing with this woman. She was on the cover of Time magazine because she stole all the money. Della Holtzman or something. It was a really avant-garde piece. And, but I was still, I couldn't get arrested in the Broadway thing. One day, John Miller calls me and says, do you want to do this show, The Life? I think Gordon Harrell, I don't know to this day how it happened, but I got, I got to think that Gordon Harrell pushed the issue because I knew John like, from doing some recording sessions with him. But I don't know if he thought of me in those days as a Broadway musician you know, which is another kind of musician. It's it's so weird that j- playing in Kirk Nurok's free jazz group, it's just the tie to me getting, playing The Life, Cy Coleman's The Life. Wow. Go figure. The Life. You said it ran for two weeks? No. No. Um, Three Musketeers ran for two weeks. Oh, okay, okay. That was a failure. And then a couple of years went by, years went by, and then the, the show The Life came up for me. And how long did that run? I don't know, man. A year or two? I can't remember. And that was your chair? That was my chair. That was my chair. Uh, my first grown-up big boy Broadway chair. And I, and I also became the in-house contractor. Oh, wow. Which, which was pretty, you know, scary. And this is the days, I know we're going back to the colonial times rap here, but there's no <laughs> internet, brother. So, you know, there was no, like, let me... Uh, email you the thing you could look at the cells and see what's wrong and it was it was uh difficult i had no experience did you think right after you got that show and it ran for a while it's like you know what i like this or was it like you know it's a gig what was your what was your mindset at the time no my mindset was yeah this is great you know it's a mixed 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 bag of blessings it was a very high level of playing very high level david spinoza was the guitarist one of the greatest musicians i've ever met I've heard many stories about him. Easily, he, yes, and they're true. <laughs> uh, a wonderful guy, a wonderful man, and just uh, there's no higher part of the food chain in the land of music than this guy. And, uh, you know, working with him every night was like, wow. Gary Haas was playing and Mark Berman and Greg Gisbert. It was a you know world-class band under Cy Coleman's direction, who's one of the greatest composers ever. It was very intense, and I, I really enjoyed the concert-level concentration every night because I also had done a ton of club dates. And, you know, the thing about the weddings and stuff, I didn't mind the weddings. The part that bugged me most was the schlepping, which was kind of unbearable. But even on a par with that was the, the, the musicians themselves and how they would just be so disrespectful to the music. You know, and it was like, man, come on, guys. It's like there was this kind of belief with those musicians. It was like, well, you know, when I get the gig with Sting, then I'll be good. And I was thinking like, no, dude, you have to be good here. And then Sting finds you. You see how that works? Um, I going sideways when I was in college doing club dates. I 
was doing club dates, and this guy Henry Gross was in, he was in Shawnee. He was between record deals. He liked my playing. I went and played in his band. He had a top ten record in the seventies. Shannon. I was in his band for a couple of years. We opened for Aerosmith and the Doobie Brothers, and it was professional rock and roll, man. And that was from a club date because he heard my playing on the club date. So for anybody out there who's thinking, whatever they're thinking, you know, I'm just going to put it out there now while we're going ADD. You got to have the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm, save the patient, save the patient. So I really enjoyed that part of the Broadway thing, how, you know, you go back, it's like a golf game. You, you want it to be better the next night. You're always trying to perfect this you know, tea ceremony thing that you're doing over and over again. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It gets a little nuts sometimes. And last thing you feel like doing is playing that music again. But I enjoyed the professionalism. How did you keep things fresh after doing it for a while? Well, I took off and did other gigs, which I highly recommend. Uh, You have to take off to play other music. I'm just pretty self-disciplined that way. I'm my own worst critic. I really go to the gig, any gig, and go, well, it's, you know, it's good enough. You know, I, I think musicians on our level, we don't need someone to tell us that it didn't go well. You know, we, we want it to go well, man. We're, it's never good enough for us. You know, it's like, well, I was out of tune, but that's okay. No, it's not okay. So, you know, I remember, like, going on gigs, recording sessions with all the heavy hitters. I would see, like, I used to work for Score Productions a little, and you'd see, like, the Brecker Brothers there, and... Eddie Daniels, you know, the cream of the crop guys of that time playing really some really crappy music sometimes. And these guys were playing like their lives depended on it. Then, you know, on the way out, you'd hear them go, man, was that the worst crap you ever heard? <laughs> well, you got to save the patient, right? The so that's oath. I like that approach. You got to, man. You got to save the patient. Do no harm. Do no harm. I always think about that when I'm on the like worst gig. I go, all right, so if Nathan East and Steve Gadd were on this gig, would they just go, yeah, you know what? Let's just rush. Play out. Yeah, it's just, just who cares? No. They would kill themselves to make it work somehow. That's the only way they know. There's only one way, you know? And that's why they are at the top, as you said, <laughs> at the top of the food chain. Top of the food chain, man. Still. Still. Do no harm. The Civil War. Tell me about that. Was that after after uh, the life? Yeah, the Civil War. I forgot about that. Um, very challenging. Very challenging. Um, we didn't use click tracks. I kind of wish we did. The show, I think it was supposed to just be a concert. And then uh, at the last minute, the producers freaked out and said, you got to make a story out of this somehow. Too much meddling. It was just supposed to, I think, be a concert. The greatest assembly of singers I've ever been around, one after the other, man, of these, like, insane singers, man. Great singers, really good songs, really amazing band, amazing band. And uh, challenging, man, to hit those tempos every night, you know, very challenging. So before we go any further, I, I just found out, is this true that you were the drummer for the 1968 season of the Dick Cabot Show? Not 1968. In 1968, even I was too young. 1968? 
I found, I I found that on some site here. I, I guess it's not true. False you... news, Clayton. False news. <laughs> false news. No, I was in the uh, the band in the 86 season. Oh, 86. 86 that Bob Cranshaw put together. Um, Little dyslexia on this uh, thing I saw. There you go. 68, 86. Yeah, Bob Cranshaw put the band together. Uh, an amazing man. Beautiful man. He just was so helpful to me. I can't, I can't, just can't say enough about this guy, man. I mean, actually, him and Milt Denton really, Milt was the guy, I, like I told you, man, he put me in pro land overnight. And Bob used to hire me for all kinds of stuff. He's, he was just, anybody who knew this man, I don't know what kind of Christ-like figure he was. He was just really fantastic. I mean, he could have hired anyone to do anything, and he hired, like, me, you know? So we did that, and that only went 13 weeks. You know what? It was the um, during the Mets' famous uh, World Series out right? with the Red Sox. Mm. That was the series when the ball went through uh, Buckner's uh, knees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the show kept getting pushed back into, like, you know, it was like 3 in the morning in some markets. People didn't really see it. We were like in a battle of the bands too with David Brenner. He had an amazing band on his show with Spinoza and Andy Newmark and Frankie Santano. But anyhow, it didn't last long, unfortunately. We, but we did have some great guests. Miles Davis was on. That was like incredibly amazing. It was great. And Miles was great. He really got along with Dick Cavan. He gave a great interview. And it was, it was electric, man. I mean, people were coming in. We used to do the show from the, uh, I think it was the Saturday Night Live set. So all these NBC guys like Paul Schaefer and Steve Jordan, I don't know. People were coming in from the walls to be in the room with Miles Davis because is there a bigger rock star than Miles Davis? Right, right. I don't think so. It was exciting, man. So Cats and the Kings. Cat and the Kings. Cat and the Kings. What was that all about? That was from uh, South Africa. These people were just virtuosic performances, performers. They came with tracks already, and we just replaced the tracks. And uh, it was kind of the story about this band, and they're down and outs, and then it ends up in this big, you know, they're in that big nightclub concert, you know. And I can't tell you, man how great these people were. And uh, another great band, Frankie Santano, Mark Gross, Ravi Best was in the band. A lot of the players from the 70s and 80s, once the, the work dried up, wound up doing Broadway shows. A lot of your contemporaries, I'm sure, from back then are, are working on shows now. Was it something that you guys were like, all right, let me do this? Or was it just something like, well, this is what's left. Let's go to do some shows. I think I saw it in the 90s, man, because that's up until then, I was a dabbler on Broadway. I wasn't, you know, yeah, seeing like David Spinoza in the band for the life. David is like, he's he's A1 kind of dude. And seeing guys like that, you'd see a lot of the horn guys, but they always kind of dabbled in that scene. But yeah, guys like Buddy, Francisco, Iris Siegel, Larry Saltzman. You know who was an innovator, man? Who switch over, dude? Innovator was um, Brian Brake. Well, he did Grease years ago when like none of because Brian was like a busy studio guy and 
he did it in like, you know, I think some of his peers are like, Brian, you're going to be, you're ruining your life, man. Because in those days, like I said before, there was a caste system. I mean, it was such a heavy caste system. You didn't want a, a phone number that didn't have 212. You didn't have 212. You would jive, you know? <laughs> wow. Oh, man, it was brutal. But like, no, in those days, no st- respectable studio guy was going to go play on Broadway. No way. But you know what, then, man? Like, even before that time, there were like these weird other times where, like, Cranshaw used to sub in Jesus Christ Superstar, I think, and Harold Wheeler used to play in Promises, Promises. There was, there was like, there was a little bit of it then, but not like, not like now. So it was the '90s where a lot of those musicians started. I kind of think that's when the studio thing really started to fade out. I think the synthesizer and sequencing and MIDI was the you know, whatever they call that in the sand, you know, that was the dividing line. Cause like I said, before that, every piece of music had to have a human. Did you wind up learning how to program drums? Good question. I have a good answer. And you'll get to hear that answer in part two of my conversation with Warren Odes. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway drumming One Hundred and One newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons, an opportunity to watch Clayton play in the pit of his show, and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.